welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Health Tech Podcast. Today I spoke to Paul Godin, so I've just come off the uh, come off the line with Paul. He is a fascinating character, he's a mechanical engineer by background, uh, did all sorts of businesses like a, a furniture building business uh, a bagel business so he brought the new york bagel company over to the uk and did that he oh God, i made loads of notes here he um then got into healthcare right so he's uh, a founder with care rooms currently he's an investor he's got a big investment portfolio everything from sort of early detection and diagnosis all the way to like mrna treatments invests across a load of different stuff um and he's he's a serial entrepreneur so he's been in the space for a long time and he's got a real view of the economics at the minute and like just how you know with silicon bank bank sorry silicon valley bank going down mouthful. uh with all of that happening and this recession that we're going into like what that actually means for the health tech space and what people should be doing he's got calls to action around vcs around that which you can hear right at the end but with care rooms he's got a really personal story so he's a guy that what seems like could have you know hung up his gloves and and got out of the entrepreneurial fight but when his when his dad got unwell with Parkinson's, he built this room in his house for him to be at home and be cared for. So this ha- this this room in his house had everything. <clears throat> Excuse me, it had cameras to monitor and take his temperature and all that sort of stuff. It had um, just all of the technology and mod cons needed to actually care for someone from a healthcare and a social care perspective in his home. When his dad then passed away, he had this room in his house which was. Uh, ready for someone else to use and Paul wanted to help and so uh basically just allowed for other people to use that room he then discovered that there are hundreds of people across the country probably into the thousands of people in the country with exactly the same setup that want to help particularly people that have got that care background themselves that have cared for someone a parent in their own home and then when that parent passes away they've got this room that can be used and so that Paul calls it the sharing economy that people want to then use that and care for someone they wouldn't go back and become a carer in the NHS but these people that can care for other people and want to so set up a company care rooms uh, that that does this had a huge amount of actually negative media attention which might sound baffling but um, at a time where health tech was still quite embryonic uh, someone photographed their stall, their messaging, what they were trying to do with a narrative of, I, th- I believe, NHS privatisation and uh, not particularly safeguarding very well, making money out of unwell. This narrative that was built that then reached as far as the HSJ and and further beyond that front page of nationals across the world. So. Um, he talks about the resilience that he needed and built to get through that part of his career um, and obviously leveraging all of his experience up to that point in order to get him through it. But yeah, fascinating story behind that. Fascinating story behind this guy in general. Um, yeah, really hope you enjoy this one. So Paul, a heck of an intro that. Um, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? Thank you very much, James. Yeah, doing well. Thank you. Yeah. Good, good. There's obviously loads to talk about, Paul, um, and I'm really looking forward to getting into it. Um, but before we do, whereabouts are you speaking to us from today? Where are you based? 
I'm speaking from my home near Cambridge, where I've lived for about 21 years, I think. Yeah. Very nice. Touching distance to London to manage all those investments, etc. Um, cool, Paul. So listen, <laughs> uh, it'd be great if you could tell us your story. It's It's a heck of a story, this, and obviously starts with not in healthcare, the move into healthcare. Um, as a founder, as an investor, managing a portfolio now of all sorts of different things. Um, talk us through it. How, where does this start? And yeah, talk us through the whole journey. Yeah, people have often said I ought to write a book about it and what the title might be. It's a series of unlikely events, really. I started in mechanical engineering, uh, working for the family business. And the first project I worked on was the design of the first Walls Cornetto plant. And I was one of the design and commissioning engineers on that at the age of 18, <laughs> which was nice. hysterically funny because they thought it was great fun to uh, cover me in ice cream during that experience at Wool's Ice Cream nice. in Gloucester. We, we went on to do other projects like Bisto Gravy Granules and all sorts of really interesting Maynard's wine gums and yeah, loads and loads of different <laughs> projects. And I was destined to be the next generation of leadership for the business. My grandfather had set it up in 1927 um, in York Way down the side of King's Cross Station. And uh, they'd uh, managed to keep it going all those years. Uh, But then we were hit by the 1980 recession. And he was wanting to retire and he saw an opportunity to sell. So they sold the business and suddenly left me somewhat high and dry. I went to work uh, as normal, but it was owned by somebody else. And I quickly fell out of love with the idea and thought, what do I do next? So he asked me if I wanted to go and run the business down in London in York Way. So uh, I literally, two weeks later, uh, went down to London and started living there in a little awful squat in uh, in Golders Green and lived and experienced that for about 18 months and thought this really isn't for me. And somebody uh, asked me if I could design some space-saving children's furniture for their new Barrett home and for their new baby, their first baby. And I said, well, I, I, I'm afraid I'm not really the guy for that because I have no clue about babies and and furniture. So he managed to persuade me. So I went to mother care with a tape measure and a ruler and, and some paper and, and, and designed this thing and then made it and in my father's garage and installed it. And the next door neighbors thought this was fantastic and asked me if I could do the same for their two toddlers. And I was squeezing these children into these tiny box rooms that uh, weren't fit for, for, for normal furniture. And then the agent for the site asked me if I could do it for all the sites uh, because they were it was helping sell the homes and I had no idea how on earth to get into that and I certainly couldn't carry on doing it with my mother's iron and my father's garage and the jigsaw so <laughs> uh, John Major was a John Major was a neighbor of ours and he said he'd help me write my first business plan which nice. we did um, with pencil and pen on a big a3 sheet of graph paper and we built this spreadsheet and uh, he taught me all about how to how to build a cash flow and pnl and so forth and he asked me to apply for the peter enterprise award which was um, to promote the new factories and the houses they'd built there 
And uh, to my astonishment, I won it. And that gave me a free factory and um, 5,000 pounds wow. cash, which in those days was a lot of money. And I bought some machines and I bought some uh, material, uh, huge sheets of melamine face chipboard and some ear protectors and some blue overalls. And I started making furniture. That was great, but it was very difficult to manage these big sheets of chipboard on my own. So I had to get some employees. And it quickly occurred to me that it was so noisy in this factory that uh, it would be good to get some people who could communicate through the noise. So I went to Papworth Industries and asked for some deaf people who could use the machinery and ended up employing a load of deaf people. Uh, they ran ring, rings around me because they could communicate and have a laugh at my expense generally across the machines. And, um, and this grew from a factory to six factories, uh, 120 staff, and we won various commercial design contracts as well. We fitted out over 1,000 a a estate agency offices. We had uh, business with BMW showrooms, Rolls-Royce, and various other retail operations that we fitted out. And we did as design and build and logo design, corporate image design, signs, and a full full turnkey solution. And it was during that journey in uh, 1986, I got a phone, phone call from America asking if I could fit out a bagel bar. And I said, I'm sure I can, but what's a bagel? This guy laughed down the phone at me. So <laughs> he said, you better come over. So he paid for a flight and off I went to New York, which was my first trip to America and uh, was introduced to the bagel industry. And this was a, a height of mafia control of new york so they controlled mm. all of fast food so it was often like going on a set onto the set of the sopranos it was extraordinary wow. to meet these people and to work with them uh, we ended up going into business together so i went and worked in new york for a while in different bagel operations and then we brought that uh, knowledge back and fine-tuned the bagel to the uk market and then we fitted nine water filtration plants in a factory in Peterborough uh, to get the, the water as close to Brooklyn water as we could. And uh, off we went. And then I had to learn how to sell bagels to the supermarket chains, uh, which was a lesson all in its, uh, on its own. It was, that was a journey of trying to protect some margins and make some profit. In that journey, we, um, I brought in a chief exec to run six furniture businesses and I ran the bagel business and we were struggling to really get takeoff. We got into Safeway and Tesco's and mm. various other retailers, but we couldn't get the real volume takeoff. Uh, the, at the time we had white bread and brown bread and granary was considered revolutionary. So here I came along with a, a bagel, which nobody knew anything about. And I saw an advert on television about knowing your numbers and reducing the fat in your diet. And I was sitting there feeling a bit depressed one day and suddenly had this eureka moment. Hang on a second. I can make some stickers, stick them on the bags and change the self shelf talkers in the stores. And I promoted the bagel as the bread roll with the non-fattening center. And... Quite literally, you could watch people walk along, see the shelf talk, pick the bag off the, off the shelf, 
look at it, smile, and put them in the basket. It was as simple as that. Interesting. It was a real lesson in communication. That message uh, just can be so obtuse to actually get them to get what your desired objective is. And off they went. And some while later, I got a phone call out of the blue from the chief executive of the Health Education Authority uh, asking me if I would advise them on consumer health behavior. Interesting. <laughs> I was very honest. I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not really the guy for you. I make furniture and bagels. Um, but um, <laughs> he said, well, maybe that's what we want. So I ended up going down to Whitehall, uh, to the House of Commons actually once a month, a day or two, just listening. And after three, three months or three meetings, I said, uh, I'm afraid I really don't understand a word you're all talking about. And that could be the problem if I'm a representative of a consumer. So they said, what do you suggest? And I said, I don't want to know all these numbers because they don't really mean anything to me. There's no relationship between them from me as a consumer. In other words, your systolic, diastolic, resting heart rate, total cholesterol, mm. HDL cholesterol, BMI. They're all numbers, but they don't mean anything in context. So... I came up with the Q score, which was a queue of 100 people like me. The one at the front of the queue was the one most at risk of a heart attack uh, or heart disease and the nearest, the back, the least. And one could trade that by reducing one's smoking or increasing one's exercise, uh, et cetera. So that was born and uh, we developed it um, with being led by uh, Professor Neil Poulter at Imperial, and he was chair of the British Hypertension Society that year. Um, so we got a load of PhDs on it, and they came up with this lookup table, which then became an algorithm, and, uh, and that developed. During that period, um, the chief exec who'd been running my six furniture businesses had been less than straightforward, and I had to prosecute him for uh, theft. And at the same time as that, in 1989, I had my annus horribilis when the interest rate went up to 15%. And two large estate agency chains went bust, owing me an awful lot of money. And all of that happened at the same time. And I couldn't trade through it because I had no core sales left because everyone was stopping fitting out shops and and investing in infrastructure. So I had the night of the long knives where I had to wind two of the businesses up. Mm. I owned everything, I personally guaranteed everything with the banks, and um, I sold four of the businesses and mm. just about kept my uh, suitcase and, and, and my clothing, but I had to sell my house and uh, pretty much lost everything. <sighs> apart wow. from the New York Legal Company. So it was a real salutary lesson, um, something you never forget. It was a very big fall. So I recovered slowly from that. You never totally recover from it, but you, 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 take, you put that in the, in the, in the uh, memory banks and you say, I'm not going to ever let myself get into that situation again. Um, and it does make you defensive. I'm a natural uh, glass-half-full approach to life person, so but it balances you. And um, I was able to help save a number of other businesses because the behavior of the banks in each of these cycles tends to be panic 
because you've got younger bank managers coming in who've never experienced it before. You've got uh, economic cycles that cause disarray, and we can talk about that later. But it was um, it was a salutary lesson in how to recover. Anyway, we uh, I was asked uh, using this Q score by the Health Education Authority to set up and run the National Screening Programme for Cardiovascular Disease, which we did from scratch. I'd never had any experience of this at all, but I brought together um, all the component parts, uh, Omron Sphigs, um, the Accutrend GC from Roche, which is the first near patient testing piece of equipment really for cholesterol testing. And we could do glucose as well. And um, set about uh, training exercise physiologists and sports scientists to use this equipment in a mobile packing case. It was secure in big foam inserts. And we developed six of these and they went all over the country every day being used to deliver screening. We did over a million um, physical health checks in shopping centers, agricultural shows, schools, colleges, um, you name it, we did it. Uh, lots of big companies. And we ended up doing the screening for HMRC, the Highways Agency, a lot of public sector bodies as well. And what was obvious is that we needed to provide a place for follow-up tests, which wasn't the primary care practice. The GPs were up in arms against uh, us for sending people with white coat hypertension, basically, having had their mm -hmm. blood checked, blood pressure checked in a shopping centre. They We needed to soft land them. So what we did was we went to the pharmacy chains and said, would you do three follow-up blood pressure checks for three weeks after the initial check? And if they still had elevated blood pressure, then refer them to their doctors. So I ended up setting up all of the national infrastructure for every single pharmacy chain, uh, training them, uh, writing all the training manuals, the professional services models, uh, designing their uh, consultation rooms, and then developing the software. And we connected all of that with a highly secure data transfer protocol where we asked everybody to download the data onto a floppy disk, put it in an envelope and send it to us. Um, this really floppy was the disk. first site of um, MedTech, if you like. Um, so 1996, we were right at the beginning of this application of technology and pulling it all together for the benefit of a patient um, in this new world. So it was a fascinating journey. We then went on to uh, run the National Diabetes Screening Programme. We found over 750,000 undiagnosed diabetics. And um, that led to me being called by the Scottish government to ask if I could go and sort out heart disease in Hamilton. And I said, well, what's the deal? And they said, we've got 250,000 pounds, a nurse, an office, two chairs and a telephone and a blank piece of paper. I said, so you really want me just to go and start from nothing and just build something that's going to change heart disease in Hamilton. And they said, yes, it's embarrassing because it's the epicenter of heart disease for Europe. And the Hamiltonians were very proud of being the epicenter of something. The Scottish government wanted to do something positive about it. So I turned up as this short Englishman um, in a suit, um, met this nurse, and I said, can we just go and meet some people, walk the streets? And she said, no, mm. you will be murdered. Um, so I said, well, how are we going to actually start? Um, so we got a few people together 
from the communities to meet me in a pub and then in the local leisure centre. And I started with an interpreter because I couldn't understand much of what they were telling me <laughs> to understand what the real problem was. And it wasn't heart disease. It wasn't deep fried Mars bars. It wasn't drugs and alcohol. It was hope. There was no hope. And the reason there was no hope because the steelworks had been shut and three generations of people hadn't worked. So the kids' role models were dad and granddad who hadn't worked, didn't work. So they just went out on the streets and caused trouble. And I had to work out how you introduce hope. Um, so we had another meeting and then another one. And I said, right, OK, how about this? We've got a leisure centre, which is council owned, and we're going to deploy that for your benefit. So we're going to offer you free access to this leisure centre um, twice a week. And you can come along and you can play any sport you want that we do. Um, it turned out to be five-a-side was very popular. And we set up five-a-side teams. And then we gave them a free three-course meal, which was a healthy meal twice a week. And I said, how about that? And they said, well, that's great, but we can't afford to get to the leisure centre. So I said, so you need free tra public transport. Yeah. So we laid that on. And then I said, well, the deal is also that I want you to come along for a free health check in the local pharmacy every three months. So I get some baseline data, and then I can demonstrate physical and clinical improvement in your heart disease risk. And they said, well, that's great. Yeah, we'll do that. Um, but we haven't got any money for everything, anything at all. So we engaged in local debt counselling agencies. And then it turned out most of them couldn't read and write. So I ended up teach them to read and write. And I said, if I do this and I get you a job, and they looked at me like I was mad, will you engage in this whole program? And they did. And within six months, street crime had dropped by over 50%. And hope started to happen. And this became a project that ran for 11 years. We took over 23,000 people through the program. Uh, we got nearly all of them a job. And I got very early on in this process. I knew that government funding never, ever lasts for very long, particularly if you're successful. Um, and we lost that money after about 18 months. And I replaced it with local support from local businesses, the local council and retailers. And I said to all of them at the beginning, if we do this, this is going to have a whole benefit to the entire community. But you've got to get behind it and you've got to be part of it. And that's what gave its longevity. It was run by an amazing team of people locally. Prince Charles came up for it at the time. And it was, it was a real lesson in the psychology of behavioural change right down to the baseline of what makes mm. people tick in their environment, in their community. So that was something that was very worthwhile. And Camden asked me to do the same for... Uh, Somalian men who were placed there because it was the largest council estate in Europe. And um, Somalian men were coming over and skewing the stroke statistics because mm. they were basically chewing cat and drinking coffee and not doing any exercise and eating a lot of tin foods, which were similar to those that they had fresh in Somalia. 
And so their salt intake was very high, so they were having strokes. And that was a fascinating journey, again, of how to understand their psychology and engage with them at a level that they were motivated uh, to engage with. So I got involved in a whole load of of these projects. And I tried to draw a line as to who this mattered to, because it was all very well doing this stuff. It wasn't making a lot of money. Uh, It was very difficult financially. So I looked at where the money is, who it really matters to. And that journey went through insurers, both medical insurers and life and health insurers. I didn't know the difference at the time. And I developed an insurance product with Aviva called My Health Counts, which is still going today. And we were at the dawn of Vitality, which was Prue Health at the time. And we provided up until very recently all of their national screening program for their members. The next step from that was to go into reinsurance. And it became apparent that the reinsurers uh, bought these huge books of risk, books of, of, of uh, policyholders, usually three to five years after these books had started. So you're talking 100, 200,000 members. And they would carry that risk for the remainder of the term. It could be 10 to 25, even 30 years. And if they were able to adjust that risk by engaging those people on cover with an early detection health check or some engagement in their lifestyle, they can actually make significant improvements in profit. The big however with all of that was every time they sent an, a letter out to these members who were paying their premiums every month, it would encourage a lapse. In other words, people go, oh, crikey, I'd forgotten I was paying that premium. I'll lapse it because I can't afford it. So there was this resistance to engage with what seemed a very logical progression to engage those people in improvement in health risk. So in the end, what we did was we developed new insurance products around the world and Swiss Re uh, engaged us globally. They bought the exclusive rights to the Q score and we took that around the world. For eight years, I traveled Literally, I was in Singapore and Sydney every two to four weeks. Um, I was nearly killing myself traveling around the world, but it was utterly fascinating to learn about microinsurance in Indonesia and Africa, uh, to learn about the differences that weather makes and culture makes and religion makes in the way that people engage with their health uh, in places like Malaysia and Singapore and Hong Kong and Tokyo uh, and Japan. So it's, um, I, I did develop some incredible uh, knowledge around these different marketplaces. We developed um, pharmacy networks for doing screening and follow-up services. And um, some while later, so I was doing this in uh, Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, Hong Kong, Tokyo, Sydney, America, and Paris and occasionally back into the UK. So my kids still remind me that I wasn't around very much. But what an amazing opportunity, and it's a real privilege to have that experience. Uh, And I still have those contacts today. It's great to be able to keep in touch with those people. And in 2015, I had the opportunity to exit that business and left and um, retained some equity. Um, and had a period of reflection of what I was going to do next, put my feet up, 
uh, went on my boat and was then introduced to Tony, Professor Tony Young, who was setting up the Clinical Entrepreneurs Program. And he asked if I'd help. And I said, what's involved? He said, I don't know, really, but we need to stop the brain drain and encourage people to stick with the NHS and get their ideas into the NHS. I had no experience with the NHS at all up until that point. But I thought, well, this sounds a bit of fun. So I wrote what was ostensibly Paul Godin's uh, list of what not to do and the number of cock-ups I've had over my uh, career. And say, <laughs> These are the things to avoid. Try doing it a different way. Try doing it this way. And what an amazing journey and ride that was to help so many bright people with the right intentions. Um, and I've since invested in a number of them and helped them. And um, it's just been an absolute joy and privilege to to get to know them. And some of them around about seven years old now, because that's the age of the program. And you're beginning to see real traction. And I think a lesson for all of us is quite how long it takes to innovate in healthcare. And we were all thinking we were going to do it in two or three years. And here we are seven years later. And those of us that have been mad enough to carry on uh, are beginning to see that uh, the fruition and the fruits of our labors um, with loyalty, with brand, with that just bull, bullheaded approach to, to keep going. And um, we're affecting millions of people's of lives, uh, millions of people's lives positively. It's a fantastic privilege to be able to do that. So that's a skim across my career so far. Um, and in 2016, my father passed away on four minutes past four on the 4th of the 4th, having decided it was enough was enough. Uh, two weeks previously, he took me aside and he had had Parkinson's for nearly 18 years. And he said, Paul, I'm too much trouble now for everybody. We just had him in a local home where he had been treated so badly that he asked me to take him out. That was for a five-day respite for my mother. And sure enough, I went to pick him up and his Parkinson's medication was running down his front. He was shaking like mad and nobody could see that he hadn't swallowed his meds. And it was utterly appalling. And he said, next time I get a UTI, which was typically at five past six every other Friday night, just after the GP practice had shut, he would ask me just to let him go. So we had two weeks of nil by mouth, and that was the most traumatic thing to see your father go through. Two months later, I was out with a friend for a drink, and his mum was stuck in the local hospital. She'd had a fall four weeks previously and was found on the floor some hours later. She'd broken her hip. She'd had a new hip, was sent back to a home first package of two visits a day for half an hour from carers. And she was terrified of getting out of the chair to go to the toilet just in case she had another fall and was on her own. So she didn't drink enough and she got a UTI, had another fall and broke the same hip and went back into hospital. And she was refusing to be discharged to the local care home where my father had been because of the reputation there. And also she didn't want to go home to be on her own. My friend lived on a, in a flat up some stairs, so she couldn't go there. 
And he said, where, where is there, Paul? And I said, I have to admit that I've been through this journey so many times with both my parents. I just have never found anything. There's no sort of interim. There's no uh, convalescence homes. There's none of that uh, capacity that we used to have, no soft landing for these patients. And the next day, we'd planned with a van to go and clear up my father's two rooms that we fitted out with equipment, a hoist, an electric bed with an air mattress, all the shower fittings and everything else, and just bite the bullet, clear it out. And we turned up at uh, midday to find my mother in the home with the curtains closed. She was still in a dressing gown, uh, which was just not like her at all. She had had a total nervous breakdown three years previously with the stress of looking after my father, and she was looking like she was going downhill again. And we sat her down, got her a cup of tea, pulled the curtains back, said, what's the matter, mum? And she said, I've just got no hope. I've got no purpose and I've got no money left. There really isn't anything more to live for. And we were chatting away and I suddenly had this eureka moment. I thought, hang on a second, we've got two rooms full of equipment a friend's mum stuck in the local hospital with nowhere to go. Imagine if. So I said to mum, we've got this friend whose mum's stuck in the local hospital. Would you be prepared to just keep an eye on her as she came here? Um, and you wouldn't have to do any caring, just have a chat, make her some meals and make her cups of tea and just chat with her, make sure she's okay and we'll provide the care from outside. So she said, okay. And I rang my friend and said, tell the hospital that you're discharging your mum. You're going to look after her. And sure enough, the next day she arrived. We cleaned the two rooms up. We supplied the food because my mother's the world's worst cook. Um, so she just had to reheat the food. And a little miracle happened. Um, within 48 hours, my mother bounced back to the person we'd known 10 years previously. Mm. She just had a light to her. Her face, she just was cheerful, happy, smiling, laughing. My friend's mum was just the same. She was just uh, just getting on so well. And she stayed for another week, and they got strong together. Uh, both of them recovered. I say my mother recovered. She needed some help to recover from the grief of my mm -hmm. father's passing, but mm -hmm. also just some, somebody to distract her and have some friendship. And that's the, with the birth of carerooms.com, which we started uh, a year later. And that has been an incredible journey um, up to this, up to the present day. Before we talk about carerooms, Paul, I want to go rewind a bit and go back to some of what you were talking about before, because I think your journey is a really interesting one. The, even, even sort of the way you communicate is very, very considered. You're, you're a very, you seem a very considered person. And actually the way that you talk about learning sectors and solving problems is that you seem to have this playbook going on whenever you've made a different move. You talked about it when you talked about houses of parliament, you talked about it when you uh, went to bagels initially you assume that you are the fool and you actually, you don't go with any preconceived arrogance that you understand the space. And you talked about this when you went to Hamilton as well, that the first thing you wanted to do was go out and listen to people. 
And it's a very active step of the journey that, and I think that that comes, it seems to me, I've talked to 300 people on this podcast, like entrepreneurs, and it seems to come naturally to the good entrepreneurs this, that the first thing that they do is that in anything new is that they listen. And I think that's a really important element to every step of your journey. You mentioned it every time that you weren't sure whether you were the right person to be doing this, which is what you said. When you went to the, when you went to the Houses of Parliament, you listened first and then said, look, I don't understand this. It's, it's a very considered approach, which comes across in the way that you communicate as well, that you seem to advocate for this go in and listen to people first, develop this deep understanding. But then there's another element, I think, which talks to your entrepreneurship ability here, which is that you go for the root cause of the problem. You don't go for sticky plasters on top. That doesn't seem to interest you. It seems that you're far more interested in actually getting to the root cause of a problem. And you mentioned hope twice. You mentioned it in your personal story with your mother, and that's a little bit different, but you mentioned it with the Hamilton thing, that actually the problem was that they lacked hope. Now, that's a really interesting phrase for me as well, because when we talk about problem solving and we talk about entrepreneurship and we talk about tech companies solving problems, when we think about those CEOs and those founders I wonder how many people, how many of those that exist, say there's, say there's a thousand, say there's 5,000, 10,000 digital health companies in the UK and you think about the entrepreneurs, how many have got the balance of EQ and IQ that could actually analyze a problem deeply enough to realize that the problem was actually that these people lacked hope and actually that's the problem to solve? I do wonder. I, I don't know the answer to that. I imagine quite a few because I think being a modern day entrepreneur, you need both IQ and EQ. But I just wanted to bring that up really and just capture any reflections that you've got on that because I don't know whether that's did that come naturally to you is that something you learned over time is that new information me regurgitating this to you I imagine not but I don't know can you talk to that a little bit that framework being a mechanical engineer and working in process engineering was a really good grounding because if you consider the complexity of developing the Wolf's Cornetto as an example you start with an idea, and the idea comes from walls. They want to make this thing. And then you've got to try and turn that into what the heck are the processes and in which order do those processes mm. have to happen? And bearing in mind this is pre-computing. So all we had was pneumatics and gearing. So everything has to be. It's like a huge Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. It's an incredible thing to conceive. We actually took the roof off Walls Cornetto, uh, sorry, Walls Factory in Gloucester, because uh, there was a two-story, we, and we put a third story on, which meant before we put the roof back on, we had to put all these chocolate tanks, all these machines, absolutely everything, <laughs> and then build a new roof. And you, if you think about the complexity of all of that coming together to do one thing, which is producer Walls Cornetto, <laughs> I was there at the start. When it you, is quite comical. When you press all these, it's just, it's just green button after green button after green. Of all the starters, starter motors in all of this massive, it was the plant was 100 metres long by about 80 metres wide. That It was a huge um, rectangular process. And... Um, what that does is make you really analyze every single 
millimeter or centimeter mm -hmm. of that journey because you're controlling um, ingredient mixing, you're controlling temperature, you're controlling depositors, you're controlling the flow rate um, of of the chocolate, mm -hmm. uh, vertical chocolate flow rate together with the, the journey of the conveyor belt, the speed of the conveyor belt. And, and all of these things have to be built in, not just that, you need resilience. So you know that the chocolate is so viscous because of the sugar in it, it wears out depositor heads really quickly. So you've got to be able to take a depositor head out and put a new one in, in line, without stopping the machines. You can't turn a chocolate factory off once you've started it because all the chocolate goes hard and you can never remelt it because you've got a 15-ton mm. chocolate holding tank. So what it does is it teaches you instinctively just to look at the risk assessment of everything that could possibly go wrong in your head. You just go, right, this, this is cause and effect all the way through this chain reaction. And, and often there are tiny little things that you'd never thought of which would just affect the entire thing. And I used to go bulldozing in in my early years of, of being an entrepreneur and say, well, I could do that. I could just solve that because I could, um, you know, because you're an engineer. You just undo it all, take it apart, put it back together again, hopefully with an improvement in that in, in whatever you're trying to do. I used to, from the age of 11, I worked in a little garage and I was mm. taking engines apart, polishing the bores. Polishing right. the, 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 the cylinder heads, doing everything to get the most out of these engines. And so I was always doing that. I was always fiddling around with stuff, making things better. And I did have to learn the hard way that just because you do something doesn't mean to say it's the right thing to do. And I call it mm. the, the, the law of unexpected, uh, unintended consequences. And the law of unintended consequences is really, if you fix a problem here, you might create a log jam further down the stream, or you might really upset somebody. You probably will really upset somebody who's comfortable mm -hmm. in their job, everything's working well, da -da, da 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 It may not be working well for everybody else, but it's working well for them, and that's been their job for years, and they don't want it to change. And that's the nature of disruption and innovation, that one mm. does disrupt things, people, processes, and other infrastructure downstream. And you'll know that um, I always start at the end of work backwards, and I often get these quizzical looks from people who say, what do you mean? Well, I found from bitter experience, this isn't me being clever, it's just from horrible experiences, mm. that the quickest way to to, to an endpoint is to start at the endpoint. So if you know where you're going to go, you know what your objective is, and then you look back from there to where you're starting, you can draw a straight line. Whereas the meandering path of doing it the other way is much more circuitous and much more expensive, and you're prone to getting trapped in the law of unintended consequences. In healthcare, does that mean looking at the world that you want to see with this new innovation? Is it as broad as that, or are you thinking? Are you are you, are you thinking then about 
to your point, are you thinking about what other people's jobs become in this department? Are you thinking how this department relates to another? How how crystallized is that endpoint vision when you think about something like, for example, care rooms? Let's work that through. So when you think when you say you think about that endpoint first, you know, there are hundred that you'll tell me how many homes there are in the UK with fully kitted out rooms to support either older adults or people with disability, et cetera, that can be therefore utilized. It can be a, a respite. It can be all sorts of different things. This room can be used. So there's a number of those in the UK. So when you think about that end vision first, and actually, yeah, let's do this for care rooms because it will help us tell the story of how you did this, for taking it from an idea to reality. What was that end point that you thought about? And then how did you go from that to then the MVP and where you are now? So in my mind, I went to everything that I experienced with my parents. So my mother's first mental health experience with, was with low sodium, which manifested in all sorts of wacky behavior. Yeah. And, and that was my first um, experience of mental health issues, which were physiologically based, but also the pressure mm. and stress that was on her that was so so dominant in every minute of the, her day with the rotating front door of carers coming in that we had to somehow lift the pressure lid off that and just totally re-engineer how my father's care was delivered. Um, so once she'd been broken by the system, uh, she was then on medication for mental health issues and there wasn't enough uh, psychiatric support for that so she would go for a whole year without any adjustment to her medication which created dependency and an addiction and so forth so i wanted to know as early as possible if there was a physiological change or a mental change or just a change in general well-being and i wanted to know that wherever i was in the world and I didn't want to just know that because if I was somewhere traveling around the world, I wouldn't be able to do anything about it other than make a phone call. So I wanted to make sure that we had experts at the other end of that technology flow, that information flow. And also somebody in the middle of the night or at five past six on a Friday night who could prescribe an antibiotic or prescribe some sort of action and intervention that would prevent a hospital admission by either parent. So I once went up to the Lake District when my parents were living there with a bunch of technology cameras and various other equipment and proudly connected all of this up to my phone and then drove 260 miles home and thought, I now know if there's something going wrong with mum and dad. Right. Um, my father immediately switched the cameras off because he didn't want to be looked at the whole time, even though mm. I told him I wasn't going to be doing that. Um, my mother would occasionally switch them on again. They usually forgot to do their daily measurements, which meant I'd have to phone, phone up. So I'd effectively turned myself into a 24-7 remote carer. And that's yeah. extremely stressful because you've got your kids and the family and business and everything else to run. So all of this went through my mind, all my experiences of 18 years of living with somebody with Parkinson's, caring for them, and somebody with mental health more recently. And my father had had a heart attack. You know, it was just one thing after another after another with, with a very 
long-term condition. So all of that experience came to bear on how could I protect a patient in a room from themselves, from being discharged often with a background UTI or an infection or an internal bleed, all of which we'd experienced before. Your father's fine. He's ready for discharge. We go and pick him up. We couldn't find him. They'd lost him in the hospital. Finally, you get him discharged, but his meds aren't ready. So you have to go back for those. Then you get a bag of meds. What on earth do we do with these? And you have to learn yourself as a, as a, as a non-medical mm-hmm. expert, which meds to give at what time of day and hope you've got it right. Um, those are all steps in this journey of protecting that individual. Now, if you're going to do that, you've got to do it incredibly well and an incredibly systematic journey and process. So it has to be written down or designed by professionals. Then it has to be written down. Then it has to be trained. And then it has to be systemized, preferably in a technical environment, so that you can deliver optimized care in a process that nobody can break. And then there's the exception, what happens if, and et cetera. So we did that, and we did it to the best of our abilities. And I had the benefit of working with the clinical entrepreneurs, so, you know, amazing people who offer their their advice for free, feeding into that journey. So when we actually came to market a year later, We'd built this technology platform. We'd gone through every procedure with the A&E delivery board at Essex, at Southend Hospital. We'd, we'd checked all the governance, and we really thought we were pretty cool because I'd done it to the best of our ability to protect that patient. And often people would say to me, what about safeguarding? So safeguarding this enormous term in healthcare, mm. it covers absolutely every working aspect and it's a very broad term and is often not very well done within the existing environment so we became extremely hot on the safeguarding component of it wrote that all in and people say to me but what happens if the host goes and rapes and molests the patient or the other way around and i thought well okay it's unlikely because they're going to be caught straight away because it's their house they're doing this in. But let's safeguard for that. So we put a camera face in the door of the room that uh, wasn't intrusive into the room, but gave us a virtual visitor log of everybody's movements in and out of the room, their time and who was there, and if there was an elevation in heart rate. And then we had a big red button, the big red panic button, which set everything off and called the emergency services and did all of this sort of thing. So. We were pretty hot by the time we'd finished that journey. So we went totally overboard because my natural go-to place is what is the resilience in the system? What is the fail-safe? And my engineering experience just designed all of that into the journey. Mm. Mm. And obviously there's only, well, there's only so much you can do. You've obviously clearly gone into a heck of a lot of detail to do that safeguarding. And yet, for all of the positive that that can do, it's interesting the flip side, I suppose, of, well, calling a spade a spade, the media attention that you got. Because this was, a, this was at a time where I knew you. And um, 
I remember all of this going on and speaking to you about it. And at that time, I think you'd, you were starting to scale across the country. You had hosts that were hosting patients in lots of different places by this point, or at least you were starting to, to, to branch out and it was starting to have some impact. And I'll let you tell the story, but the media didn't actually look upon it too kindly for whatever reason, but, and there was a heck of a lot of learning that, that you went through in that period. So can you tell, can you tell us a bit about that? We'd worked with the board of the hospital in their A&E delivery board meetings once a month for 11 months. And it was all minuted and documented and that informed our safeguarding processes and the design of the service. And we agreed that we were going to soft launch this. Um, in fact, launch is a very strong term. We, we just thought, let's go and find some more information out before we do anything about launching it. So we bought a pull-up stand, um, which talked about the service. And uh, one of our team members with some leaflets, and I say our team, there were three of us in the whole business. And it was my daughter, uh, Lizzie, who um, I poached from John Lewis Management. And she was handing out leaflets. And, um, and, and we were just talking to people in the coffee shop at South End Hospital. And some very mean person in administration saw this, took a, 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 an image of the uh, leaflet and of the stand and sent it by email to the head of the Save RA&E department campaign. It was a local page three Sunford um, photographer. And he had aspirations to be a Labour councillor. And he decided he was going to use this as evidence that the hospital was not only going to shut the A&E department, but was now going to shut all the wards and put people out into people's homes. So he spun up a story, um, which, which he then um, sent to the HSJ. And I was on a flight to go and have a well-earned break uh, for two weeks in America, I just landed in uh, Los Angeles. As this thing took off, and the HSJ thought, this is something meaty here. And mm. they didn't interview us. Um, they just made up a story and published it, uh, which then took off again. They syndicated it, and it went global. So what happened in a matter of hours was a leaflet and a stand turning into this international story. Now, we called it, I thought intelligently at the time, Care B&B. And mm. it turned out to be a really good name because it described exactly what was on the tin. But the association with Airbnb made it look like Airbnb, this big American company, were coming mm. in to take over the NHS. With a profit model. And it's a fascinating journey of reflection into what might one might have said if one knew what was going to happen, what one might not have said, what one might have done differently. But we genuinely weren't launching. We were just handing some leaflets out to do some market research. So we were contacted, or I was contacted by NHS England, their comms department, uh, Simon Stevens' department, Jeremy Hunt's department. Everybody wanted to find out what I'd done. And I said, oh, I've done nothing. We just handed out a few leaflets in hospital. <laughs> and, and this is what's happened. And 
literally within 24 hours, I had news stations from all over the world wanting to speak to us. Um, to every every newspaper on the front page of every newspaper, every news story, station, every television story, we were over everything. And we were asked not to comment, which was extraordinarily challenging because I wanted to protect our position and our business, but I had to respect uh, the NHS's position. So for five days, um, we were asked not to say anything. That was from the Wednesday to the Sunday, and NHS England put out one of the junior health ministers um, to say that they were supportive of innovation in the in healthcare, health and social care. And this was an example of it. That took the heat out of it. But what we suffered in the meantime was my daughter had, and uh, one of the doctors from the Entrepreneurs Programme, I won't mention his name to protect him, but they had death threats. They had the most malicious oh. uh, phone calls and emails um, threatening, um, threatening harm because we were taking over the NHS or doing something different. And it struck me as just the most impossibly difficult thing to try and respond to because I'd never experienced anything like that before. On the Monday, we got a, a message from the, the editor of the Daily Mail, almost apologizing for following the herd because they put it to the vote that morning on the Monday morning to say, what do people really think about this? And every single person on the editorial team put their hand up to support it. And they then said, we would like to, as Middle England's newspaper, to really support this idea. It, it had been a really rough ride. And yeah. what it did was surfaced um, people's feelings about it. But above everything else, above all of that turmoil and above all of the hate, surfaced 600 hosts who applied to be hosts in those first four or five days. And wow. almost every single one of them had been through the same journey as me. Yeah. Um, had experienced the same gaps in the system, had left work, retired from the healthcare um, services uh, job uh, from the NHS early to look after mum or dad, built a granny annex on. Granny or mum had, had passed away, and now they were left at home with an empty, empty nesters and an empty granny annex. And they knew that they wanted to help. They knew mm -hmm. what we were trying to do. And it's a sharing economy model. It's, uh, it's how do you help people soft land back into their communities mm. and to stop that social isolation that's so endemic in our modern societies. So we came away with hope. And the board that we've had all this time just stepped up. And I said, what do we do, guys? And they said, we've got to carry on. Um, so. It was a big lesson, and it made us really sharpen our, our act. We got BBC media training at that point. Mm -hmm. We really, really focused on our message, on every single word that we communicated. And even to, to this day, we're still learning how to communicate mm -hmm. because it's such a sensitive area. Change in health and social care and in care generally 
and safeguarding and all the components to go with us, what I learned was we were so far ahead in our thinking. We were so mm-hmm. together in our thinking that people couldn't believe that we could actually have done everything we'd done. And to be fair to us, we hadn't actually had the opportunity to communicate that because it all took off before we'd even opened a single room. So it was it was an amazing lesson and one to this day that we continue to nurture and, and to polish. I think it's fascinating and for for two reasons. I think the the way that it's spun up with media is interesting and how a narrative can be built incredibly quickly. The second thing that I think is fascinating is actually what you just talked about, which is that I'm starting to see clearer now that in health tech, there are two frontiers that are incredibly important to every entrepreneur. There's the technology frontier of what can actually be done. But then there's the, then there's the frontier, which is way behind, but variable, which is what's the frontier of what's actually acceptable, doable and adoptable. And that frontier is what changes through education of the workforce, through training of people properly, through the understanding of what technology actually is and what it can do, through the belief and a word you keep using, hope of what could change. It's all of that information that moves that bottom frontier of what's actually doable and adoptable closer to the technological reality of what could be done. And what's happened here with you, and I remember not thinking that clearly as what I've just explained at the time, but thinking something similar, which is that what you've set up behind the scenes is so vastly different to what people think is actually achievable, realistic, even moral because they haven't even thought about the the economics behind it or because he, those weren't terms at the time like digital health health tech at the time this was all new i was still having conversations by the way with people about like our digital health apps is that privatizing the nhs it, like it's like is a new service coming in privatizing it? Like, th- these were such nuanced conversations at the time that People weren't ready for what, to your point, people weren't quite ready for what you were offering. And so for a, for a, someone with potential uh, aspirations of being a, a Labour councillor to peddle and uh, to peddle a hard left narrative that that is along these lines was probably low hanging fruit and easy wins seemingly without the realization that actually a left-wing narrative is to <laughs> not do any of that and actually promote innovation for what it can do for the economics of healthcare and pff, call me a centrist, but <laughs> like wherever you want to draw that line. But yeah, I, th- I think that frontier bit is, is really interesting, but also I think this media bit is interesting. I'm in communications. We, we're, you know, some of our team have gone on crisis communications training, actually, so we can start offering this to people as well. And actually, this becomes in- incredibly interesting to us that the decision not to comment early on and the decision to have to hold back and not to retaliate requires a heck of a lot of, I think, experience, resilience, strength in a number of different ways, because I can imagine this overwhelming urge to fight back against this narrative with you don't understand me, this isn't fair, 
Like, if you have you, do you even know about my dad? Do you know why I have this room in my house? Do you know what I'm trying to do is just soft land someone from hospital into the community? Like, can you not? But intent doesn't matter. And media in this extreme form is about the removal of context. That is, that is media in this tabloid style. It is all about removal of context. And that's what upsets me somewhat about modern content, which is all about super short, take TikTok, for example, super short videos, super short, incredibly engaging videos. And this element through content of whatever message you need to get across, it needs to get across quickly. Whatever I want to learn or whatever I want to teach just has to be in this like split second, one sentence. And that's the valuable lesson. It's like, no, actually the valuable lesson in so much is through the long form. The value is so, is so much through the context not the short content, not just the sentence that is at the end, but actually the, the paragraph and the story that comes before. And media being this context removal system in the sort of national media tabloid uh, framework just really upsets me. <laughs> like where, where attention span goes down, it plays into the model of that type of media going up. And, and where it's an attention economy, you can understand where the HSJ and other and other other uh, publications like that will take a story that's already been contextualized somewhere else of, hey, the narrative's been built, here's what it is. We've now got this that we can go to our, our readers with. It's an attention economy. They're selling ads per page. So actually the more clicks, the better. And so the more sensationalist, the better. And media just ends up perpetuating this kind of like – attention economy no matter what and it, and and we know that negative gets more clicks than positive and therefore like blah blah, blah that's why writing headlines is so difficult because it's all about the clickbaity headlines etc because that's what drives business models and so where the where the business model of media and and the the business model of healthcare and the narrative and the morality that we're trying to improve in healthcare how do you promote good morality in healthcare through traditional media approaches well it becomes very difficult hence one of the reasons we exist because actually to build relationships and actually to build positive narratives and positive stories that are clickable is incredibly important. And that starts with community that read it as much as it does with the journalists that write it as, as and how that whole thing comes together. But yeah, I, I think there's so, there's so much interesting in that story. It just must, it just must've been like just incredibly frustrating. Um, yeah. So many learning points. It, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's been, you know, it, personally, it's extremely expensive. Uh, you know, we've invested <laughs> yeah. an awful lot of money in this. Um, which, by the way, takes away from what you can reinvest in the company to bring the impact, which actually that becomes, a, yeah. rather than a comical point, a quite an important point. Because, yeah, the extra 50 yeah. grand that you need to spend on crisis communications is 50 grand that could have been spent directly marketing to get more hosts or to get more patients into rooms that are empty. You know, like, it's yeah. important. Yeah. And it... It's it's um, we we got um, beleaguered by this uh, you know, Google uh, position in Google because everybody went to that you know oh let's have a look so anybody we were right. trying to sell to new health systems and and health and local authorities immediately Google has not popped the headings you know thanks mm. but no thanks um, privatization of the NHS you know it's not safe whatever else. All of that stayed with us for years, and yeah. and we've had to work diligently and, and hard. So that made it even harder 
to get through the system, which is naturally risk averse. And people read that and 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 believed it. I remember our local newspaper here, who I've known for years. Um, they wrote a front page. They picked up on it a long time later. It just popped up mm. um, as me being a local businessman. We were we were opening in Cambridgeshire, and that mm. popped up. and And this lady wrote the most horrendous attack on what we were trying to do without any interview with me at all. There's no opportunity for yeah. uh, discussion yeah. or debate about it. And I remember calling her afterwards and I said, could you just talk to me about where this came from? Um, mm -hmm. why, the, wh why such a vociferous article? And she said, well, uh, you know, I've read everything that you, you know, there's been published about this. And, and I said, do you, did you believe any of that? Mm. Um, and, and why have I had no right uh, for discussion? And very quickly, she she started to unravel, and I said, "This is my personal story." And it turned out that she had been looking after her mother for a long time, and desperately needed somewhere for her mother to stay and be and looked after when she was at work or or uh, went on holiday or whatever else. She had no respite from this, and it was a deeply personal experience. And she suddenly realised that care rooms would have been a fantastic solution for her personal circumstances. And she burst into tears on the end of the phone. And she said she would write something different. She did, and it got positioned way down in the, in the, in the newspaper. So of course. Most people didn't see it. It was a retraction of what had been said, but it, it, the damage had been done. And we mm. still never yet got into Cambridgeshire. It was stopped because wow. of her. So the net impact on this is that patients are still suffering. We've got over 7 million people now waiting for surgery because there aren't the beds to be discharged into post-surgery. Post so would you believe there are new now organizations calling us up, hospitals asking us to develop fast flow capacity, so for step, step down. So for elective surgery, you go in, meet your host, drop your bag off, we drop you into the hospital, you have your new hip, we pick you up from the recovery room, we bring your hope back to our room, we settle you in, we wire you up into the virtual ward environment, we look after you, we get you out of bed every so many hours to get your hip moving, we give you all the hydration you need, all the, all the food you need, and get your muscles back and active, and you feel safe because you've got 24 seven round the clock support and care. There's somebody just in case there for you. And the, your recovery rate is so much faster because it's not just the physical side of getting out in bed and doing the things you've got to do. It's the mental security that allows you to sleep really deeply to recover without the noise and the stress of a hospital or a care home and without the anxiety of being at home on your own waiting for a carer to attend uh, twice a day. So we have all the evidence now that it just works. And we, mm. every patient that leaves us becomes an independent patient again, who's happy, who's joined the care rooms community in the, in the locality, who now has a purpose to help others like them. So they're not stuck mm. at home, dependent on a carer to visit the only form of human contact. We turn everybody into a net 
contributor to the healthcare system rather than a net consumer of it. It just works. People are happy. They smile. We call a little, we, we work little miracles on everybody. It just is amazing what you see. It's, it sounds amazing, Paul. And actually, you know, your view of the whole healthcare space, your seemingly what we talked about before, the mechanical engineer in you and the process engineer in you has clearly given you the energy to attack this problem, which is a big problem. And actually, there are so many, I talked about this, I think, last week on the podcast, like there are a lot of point and shoot digital health applications. And actually, I do see, yes, it was last week, I think. It was it was one aspect of Philip from Fitfile that I see now that health tech innovation is actually quite a lot. Yes, okay, the point and shoot digital health apps that can go and do a thing, digital therapeutics or this, that, the other. But actually, there's these infra, there's these big infrastructure changes that actually are these deep problems to solve. Like to our point earlier about root cause of of things. Like th- these are messy problems. These are not easy to solve. Like all of that safeguarding stuff that you have to do, as well as like figuring out like how this inter- interacts with A and E departments, how this works with primary care, how this works with the with the with with social care and with like healthcare, like it, it, it's messy problem. This, but I think, I think, I, I on, like this. This is where the big change is going to happen. It's just not going to happen quickly. It's just, it's just not going to happen easily. There's not going to be a light bulb moment. It's, it is messy, and it's it, like in the tech world, it'd be APIing to all these different things. But in this case, it's, it's how you interact as humans and as people and as a service with all these different things. But. You mentioned virtual wards, very much on the radar of NHS England and all that national narrative at the moment of like, how do we actually practically do this? What you've described is quite literally a virtual ward, like you have just described it. It's often talked about as yeah. how you piece together various services to actually make a virtual ward. You're actually just talking about it under one like label. It's like, we just put a virtual ward there with all its tech and all its stuff. So it, it clear, you know, you've done it. It clearly is that, but it's how will that interact? So I think, like, but I do think my point is going to be like, I think it's it's difficult it's tough it's a long journey media can think what it likes the rest of it but ultimately it's a valuable problem to solve and i think there is that purpose behind it and and clearly you talked about the smiles and people happy and a lot of individual stories of benefit and i think that is nice that there's beauty in that for me of this is very linked to individual story and individual agency to do what they want with a resource that they have to make someone else better that there's a lot of that type of story in this as well which i think just gives it i don't know it, it gives it a bit it does give it a beauty for me but i guess with with your knowledge and understanding and, and problem solving with all of that stuff you, you end up with a very good understanding of health tech uh, and you've seen it from many vantage points particularly even like the the insure tech side this care tech side like health tech side that obviously gives you the ability to assess the commercial viability of lots of different things that come across your desk, which I imagine is how you end up in angel investing and and developing a portfolio on that side. So just to ask you really quickly on this, the portfolio that you've set up, I mentioned at the start, it spans a few different things. What are you looking for in your portfolio? Are you looking for a diverse portfolio? Do you have a specific thing that you invest in? Um do you enjoy your angel investing side? Do you sit on boards? Do you take an active role? Are you more passive? Talk to me about your angel investing very briefly. 
Yeah, uh, it started off really by accident, and um, it started <laughs> off with resource only, and then um, more recently with with capital. Um, and it's really a case of looking at the opportunity that is presented to me, which happens every day. Somebody comes to me with something, and and looking at the team behind it first of all and then the application that they're trying to or innovation that they're trying to bring to market and after so many years of doing this i instantly know whether something's going to succeed or not um mm. i've been right and wrong a couple of or wrong a couple of times but you can see the things that just have the right team and the right innovation doesn't always mean it's going to be successful what it means is that you've got a better chance of success because there are so many factors affecting it. If you look at what uh, Simon Bourne's done, which is an amazing job at Mayan Health, he just doggedly carried on against all the odds. And now it's the biggest digital therapeutics and disease management business in the country by uh, in a, uh, over 100,000 patients in the NHS every day we're looking after. It's a phenomenal story. But it's, taught, it's been a tortuous journey. And there, there are, you know, others. Pipe, we set up uh, Piper Health to help businesses, not just with capital. It's it's about utilizing the resources in the most efficient manner. An awful lot of uh, entrepreneurs have raised an awful lot of money over the over the last few years uh, at ridiculous valuations, and everyone was looking at, oh wow, that's become the pursuit of more capital, um, not the pursuit of cash, not the pursuit of of profit. And mm. that's gen developed a, a whole generation of businesses that aren't sustainable. So mm. every pound that you get, I sweat. And and any chief executive that I work with, you'll that will look at me as the most painful, tight-fisted um, chair or, or advisor that they have. But it's because I know the value of cash from my experiences, and uh, therefore growth may be slower in the early stages, but you'll be there through the ebbs and flows of economic cycles where others will drop. Um, you end up with owning far more equity uh, through my models than you do if you go the full VC, um, dilution mm. after dilution after raise after raise. And these are things that I've, lessons that I impart uh, and on, on these founders. And I've the, the portfolio has just developed over time into a story and a narrative that's a cycle of health from really, a, you know, the start of finding a condition, early detection, right the way through to end of life and filling in gaps in between. And it's the contact mm. points. You look at ChemBooks, the most incredible ED management system that there is on the marketplace, developed mm. by consultant EDs. Um, uh, consultants who are just, uh, you know, really, really frustrated with what's in front of them, and they've engineered the system, which just sorts out an enormous amount of noise in running an emergency mm. department. And then you've got eConsult and what they're doing with uh, an amazing new new model of, of of triage, both primary care and, and secondary care, and then. Um, you look at what we're doing with um, a, new, a new model, which uh, we're calling Health Ways, which is the navigation to the fastest route to diagnosis as possible. 
and that's working with Jiva um, and their multimodal AI capabilities and EMIS to un understand what journey that journey looks like and presenting it to mm. the referring uh, GP to, to support their decision making uh, in 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 what will stay forty over forty percent of unnecessary diagnostics and at a time in our in our history where there's a real constraint of course with the uh, amount of or capacity of diagnostics as well as um, the the amount of uh, budget we have available to do it so there's all of these things have a role to play in early detection diagnosis treatment um, management insurance of 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 these services as well uh, with field group um, you know we're looking after nearly 900 early stage businesses it's incredible wow um, managing all their insurance needs and, and their growth that business in itself has become this new innovative new insurance business that nobody's done before so it is just this amazing journey of 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 learning and identifying what gaps there are most recently is mental health and i've seen so much mental health uh innovation but one does need to understand that there's this massive constraint in resource so how does one create more resource out of what's there already and that's introducing efficiency uh, it's not just mm. all online. Human, human to human contact mm. is a feature in an awful lot of what I do. Is how do you leverage this capacity? Care rooms, for example, is leveraging an enormous workforce of retired healthcare professionals that wouldn't go to be a carer per se. They wouldn't want to go back into mm. the NHS, but they've got all those skills to do the most amazing virtual ward. And mm. and that's wrapping around the technology to deliver that capacity, which is new capacity. So it's not an easy answer to say, what do I invest in? What I look for? But I have the privilege of being in the destination point um, with Ollie at Piper. We constantly get this amazing th opportunities presented to us. And what I'm doing now is setting up a fund, which is a fund of funds internationally that allows people to invest in these each of these businesses within a fund structure so it's governed nice but it's not a vc fund it's it's mm. it's a long term investment in these businesses because you've got to see mm. them through and out the other side they've got mm. to be given that life of at least 10 years to begin to have that impact yeah yeah and before i let you go um you talked about being at a time where resources are constrained what's your feeling on where we're at at the moment we had all the sort of september october last year these the announcements of economies going down this caused loads of various different panic i mean we saw it in even our client roster the movement just became enormous of coming and going and bigger clients coming down from bigger agencies and coming to us and smaller ones going so they're worried about everyone's trying to extend runway like there was, there was so much there was so much going on it was it was chaotic at the end of last year then we had silicon valley bank as well and that that panic pushed silicon valley bank over the edge the uk entity wouldn't have actually had a problem if nobody had withdrawn the volumes that they withdrew because they were business model positive but then that just the, the panic literally caused the uk entity i think to collapse if i've remembered that correctly 
um, rather than it being a business model issue. But um, yeah, I mean, what's your view of where we're at now in terms of recession and these cycles, having been in the game a bit longer than I have? Should I be panicking? Should we be panicking? Should anyone ever panic? Or do we keep calm and carry on? One of the few benefits of being this old is that you've got the wisdom <laughs> of experience of, of, of many, many economic cycles. I was recently doing some research into economic cycles and their frequency to, 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 just to see if there's mm. what the pattern actually looks like. And I ended up going back to 1857. <laughs> and, um, up, and, 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 and up popped. I was in Jersey last week on business. And Jersey is the home of Degrushi Godin, which is my, my, my full name. So Degrushis and Godins are like Smith and Jones out there. It's a, it's a very common name. Right. And it goes back uh, to yeah, just before 1100 on the island. So um, and it's a very small island. So it's a rather easy way of going, finding one's uh, family tree, which my grandfather did. Anyway, there was a Degrushi Bank. It was the bank that underwrote the four other banks on the island in the first global financial crisis we had in 1857, <laughs> which um, wow. frustratingly took the bank down, which otherwise I might have been a very wealthy um, um, member <laughs> of a family, banking family. Um, it's frustrating to look back on that. But um, <laughs> so 1857 was the, was the first one. And over those subsequent years, we've seen no real pattern to cycles, just the fact that it's definitely going to happen every 10 years. Uh, occasionally, you get an 11-year. Mm -hmm. um, the two world wars have created um, a different uh, interruption in that pattern. But what it's taught me is that as you look at the media, um, de the development in media uh, styles and, and accessibility, where it used to be the flutter of a of a wing in uh, America would cause, uh, you know, a flu epidemic here or whatever else. Uh, what we're seeing now is something that happens in the states, and the eighteen fifty seven one started in the states. We're seeing a tsunami, and the current one, I believe, is a tsunami that's based upon four hundred billion dollars of technology investments that have been made over the last 10 years, which have been made at ridiculous valuations, mm. made by people who haven't had the experience of previous recessions, haven't had the right. experience of understanding what the value of cash actually is, understanding what a business actually is, that it's there to make money for its shareholders. It's not there about, it's not just about creating a valuation and an exit point which has made a few people very wealthy. This is actually about the basics of business. And what we've got is $400 billion that will never see a return on investment for their shareholders. Now, that has to have a painful impact. And what we're seeing so far as the tidal wave came through is it's gone around the world very quickly, and it's about to hit the West Coast of America again. Now, the outcome of that impact, the energy that that wave still has, I believe will determine whether or not we're really going to have a massively tough time or that we will just see 
an improvement over the second half of this year. It's also, I, I believe, about human behavior. If I look back on each of the recessions I've lived through, human behavior is a fascinating and fundamental factor in this. You have the market makers who traditionally have started it, but you've also got the human behavior that's driven it. So, and it, it's, a, it's a virtual circle. It drives that outcome either to an improvement, which is an inevitable outcome, but also to the decline. It's stimulated, obviously, by weather and by global warming and wars that we've seen in the Ukraine. Um, so all of these things have been factors, not just in recent years, but going back for the last century and beyond. So what is definite is these things will happen. So how do we as human beings, how do we as consumers, how do we people and as employees and entrepreneurs, how do we plan for this? Well, we plan for it by having sufficient reserves, by being realistic about the products and services that we're developing, and being resilient to these ups and downs. And if we develop our businesses with that infrastructure, with that knowledge, with that flexibility, then we stand the chance of riding the waves rather than being crushed by them. And I think we need to get back to the reality of what business is about. We've seen an awful lot of VCs um, employ young graduates straight out of university who have no experience to actually advise, to sit on boards of businesses to advise on their in, in, in investments. Um, without the knowledge, without the background and history that you need um, to, to survive these, these ebbs and flows. So I see this cycle as being something will, which will be defined by the way that we behave. And mm -hmm. I, I would compel and I would ask the VCs and the investment market across the world to just take a step, take a moment to honor what they've invested in, to honor the opportunity that they've got. And yes, there are down, down rounds and, 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 and valuation hits, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I remember in the early 90s when everybody was going bust, there was no hope. And most of the businesses then were funded by banks and underwritten by assets, which were houses and personal guarantees and commercial premises. That was it, really. There wasn't anything else. You didn't have lots mm. of the investment funds and, and, and VCs mm. doing what they'd been doing for the last 10 years. And what I saw there was I was able to go into banks and help businesses that have been through what I'd been through or were going through what mm. I'd already been through. And it was that fear of failure. And it was the fear of failure, not just of the entrepreneur but, or the business owner, but also of the bank manager. And we don't even have relationships with our bank managers nowadays. You used to be able to go and knock on the door and have an appointment and sit there and discuss mm. the problem. Now it's all remote. So what we've got to do is to go back. What I did then was to restructure things and soft land and spread it. You've got an asset, mm. which is cash, your product, your service, your infrastructure, whatever it is you've invested in. You've got an asset. And provided you can provide sufficient cash flow and just eat resources out. If it's a good business, if it's a good product, it can survive. But don't, everybody must stop panicking and going with the flow. My arch nemesis, I've never met him, 
was Robert Peston. In from 2007, 2008, he encouraged us every day on the news to have a recession. Once we got there, let's see if we can have a double dip one. When we got the double dip one, I wonder if I can get a treble dip one. It was this constant erosion of confidence in us as business people and the economy and the consumer. And I think we have in the press a responsibility to us as a country, our citizens, our, our businesses, to just take some heat out, just have some confidence in us as an economy and as a country. And that needs to be pervasive all the way through our infrastructure. And our investors and our lending market needs to take a longer term view on this, and we will survive. If everybody just bails at this stage, we ha- everybody has an awful lot of money to, and, 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 uh, mm. and losses to, to, to swallow, and it just doesn't need to be that way. It's a heck of a message, Paul. It's interesting because you've obviously got the benefit of experience of, as you say, going through multiple of these and, and seeing this. And actually, it's funny that in health tech, you know, I speak to so many, in inverted commas, young people. To your point about people that are you know, fresh out of university, they've, they've raised some money, they're trying to do a thing. There's, there's so much of that. And with that comes this not unhealthy, but, but optimism. It, it's optimism that exists. And it, it's, it's the lack, I talk about this one of my friends all the time, actually, this kind of lack of belief that things can go the other way, you know, like you've had a good year, you've had a good, but, but you could have a bad year. And so to sit on, and we talk about this personally with personal assets and cash of like savings and stuff of like, it's great that you put so much in the bank this year. It's great that you've got that job that pays really well, but things can also go wrong. And so actually to sit on your resources, live within your means and actually just go about your personal finance in a way that just doesn't put you at risk and gives you one less thing to worry about. It, it's a basic concept, but seemingly that goes into the way that Jess and I run Somex, which is that we're fine with sitting on cash and we're fine with not reinvesting every single penny in order to achieve this constant growth. Like we don't actually need to. We're very fortunate that we we don't have investors and we own 100% of the business. So, and so actually we take these decisions of like actually just spending some time to consolidate things and actually sit on a profit margin of whatever it is to put X amount in the bank and actually just build that and have that and then not to go unnecessarily risky, especially in a time like this, you know, it just, it, it gives, it just gives us a, a, a better sense of, I don't know what you call it, but just a greater comfort, I guess, to, to know that we don't have to do the thing that everyone's doing. We don't have to go for infinite growth. You don't have to do those things. And especially not at a time where it in- dramatically increases risk. I don't know. It, it, it's, it's, it's a funny concept. Um, and, one that I see a lot in people that I know of this this unrelenting belief that things are going well now, they're always going to go well. I've put this amount of savings away this year, so I'm going to be able to put more out away next year. No, you might actually have to rely on those savings. That's why you shouldn't spend them. <laughs> you might have to dip into them for, for things that go wrong in life and in business, you know? And so it's in talking to people like you that gives us this framework that we have actually, and I know you and I've spoken many times before, you know, not least about these types of things t- 
to put me on an even keel and figure out the best way of doing things to future proof what we're doing. And, it, you know, I'm incredibly grateful for you, that you, you, you lend your ear to me for that sort of stuff. But, um, yeah, I, I think it is a message that's important. I think it is a message the way that you you're talking to multiple groups there, but you are talking about keeping calm and carry on. You're talking about business as usual. You're talking about actually honoring. It's an interesting word that in itself, honor, honoring, honoring what's been said, honoring the commitment that you've given, because actually that is what's going to stabilize things. You talk about evening things out. And I think that it is a lot about that, isn't it? It's a lot about stopping these ebbs and flows of, of confidence and the knock on human behaviors, literally with Silicon Valley bank, you know, literally that's what we saw the media narrative followed by the human behavior, followed by a bank collapsing. It, and as you say, Robert Peston, if you're going to go on and talk about, Oh, is there going to be a double dip? Are we going to see this? Are we going to see that? Of course that enters the consciousness of people. And of course that affects human behavior. And it's a point that you've talked about in this whole conversation, but um, listen, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about a huge number of things there. Um, I think this is probably the longest podcast I've ever done. Um, but I'm incredibly <laughs> grateful for you to, to, as I say, lend your ear and, and talk about all of those things. It's, uh, it's great to have your experience on here. And, and that's not just the number of years. It's actually in the amount of things that you've done. You've, you've literally done so much in your career to, to learn from. But if I'm going to leave anybody and everybody with something here, I think it's that framework of listening, deeply understanding, and then addressing a root cause and problem solving that way, even if that is the difficult thing. That's where the value truly is. That's where the purpose, I think, truly lives um, at the end of those exercises. So that's what I'm going to leave people with. For you, Paul, if you want to leave people with anything in terms of if they want to get in touch with you, if you if they want them to learn or that if they want to learn more about care rooms or anything like that, what's the best way for them to uh, find you or find care rooms or get in touch with you for any of the above? Yeah, um, email me, paul.godin at carerooms.com. And um, I'll happily through Piper, paul.godin at piper.health. I'm happy to, I've always got a, an ear open. I'm always there to help. And uh, and mental and um you know i see the gaps in the system and i'm trying to do my mm -hmm. best to help and um and and just at the moment it's about resilience it's about keeping costs under control keeping the cash in the businesses and yes there's going to be some consolidation those that have been diligent and saved and have cash will go and do some mnas and mop-ups and great businesses at the moment mm -hmm. and that's a factor of the casualty process that happens but be that be that organization that's well well resourced and resilient and um and good luck to everybody who's put their head above the parapet to become an entrepreneur i love it thank you paul we'll speak soon hey everyone thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode remember to subscribe rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content